Congress has hundreds of members, thousands of employees, and a collection of monumental buildings. Well, now it has an application programming interface, or API. For more about the API and how this one will help spread information about the legislative branch, we turn to product owner Andrew Weber and the director of IT design and development, Jim Karamanis, both from the Library of Congress. Good to have you both on. It's good to be here. Good to be here. Thank you. And Jim Karamanis, we'll start with you. I guess the implication is that in addition to all those members and buildings, there's a lot of data that Congress generates. Yeah, there's a tremendous amount of data, and there's a big need in the community to be able to access it directly machine to machine. All right. And machine to machine takes an API. Andrew, what exactly in layman's terms is an application programming interface and how does it help? It's a way for computers to take the data from congress.gov and display it other places. So it's just one more tool in our arsenal to help share federal legislation more broadly. Congress.gov is the primary access point for the website, but now we'll be able to share that through the machine to machine directly. And how did this effort to create this API, I guess it's a set of APIs, that fell to the Library of Congress and not say there is an IT operation somewhere there on Capitol Hill also? So the Library of Congress has been the steward of this data for a couple decades now. So we are actually the ones that provide congress.gov for Congress. So we are the stewards of the data. Thus, we are the ones to make the API available to the public. And give us a sense of the types of data, the range of data, the subjects. What does it look like to someone that knows databases? The different collections that we have on congress.gov are accessible through the API, and we're building out, so everything will be there. But right now, there's legislation, there's the member feeds, committee reports, things like that that you can access. Because when I see legislation, normally all I get is a big, giant PDF. But is there some machine-readable format that this also exists in, and maybe the system that generates the PDF? So in addition to the PDF, there's the text versions, but we also produce the, the summaries, the Congressional Research Service, because the summaries will be available through the API, as well as the actions, the status steps for the legislation as well. So it's the total package about the piece of legislation. All right. And how many? I mean, are there thousands of databases, hundreds, millions? What's the scope of the whole project here? So there are some high-level databases that has the legislation and then the different types of material that we have on the site as well. So the congressional record, we have members that you can pull from. If you go to api.congress.gov, you can see the listing of all the points that you can start to use the API with. And maybe give us a sense of what someone external might want to do and how can they do it with the API. For example, every time Congress mentions this thing or that thing, or just maybe make this living for us so that we can get a sense of how it might be used. Jim? So there's a variety of external people that use the data. Some sell the data, some provide it for public use, data transparency advocates. So it depends what the need is, but it does enable you to create relationships to the data that you might not necessarily see on Congress.gov. For instance, people like to see who voted on what. So, in other words, someone could create an application to see how these six members voted on something containing this particular piece of information or this particular topic? Absolutely. But it goes deeper than just key words and that kind of thing, fair to say? Yeah, very much so. But it, it requires a, an understanding of the data in order to be able to create those experiences. And how does one get that understanding? Is it by searching the APIs or the list of databases or how would you know what's there? We do have a lot of documentation on GitHub. So if you go to api.congress.gov, there's a link to our GitHub space where 
We document changes to the API, so enhancements, as well as just a little bit of how to use and how to start with the API itself. If you have any questions or you're having an issue with a particular part of the API, that's where you can also report an issue where we're reviewing those and starting to work on little bug fixes or possible future enhancements to the API. And we're speaking with Andrew Weber. He's a product owner and with Jim Karamanis, Director of IT Design and Development, both with the Library of Congress. And give us a sense of how you went about developing the API. Do you have people there that can program these things or did you have to get a contract and have a contractor do it? So we have both, actually. We have internal resources at the Library of Congress that architect and develop systems. We also use contractors to help with the development And what are the security implications here? Do people that want to build an application just download the database and then it's on their systems? Or do they build applications that are constantly hitting the Library of Congress repositories? So the answer is yes. It can work either way, but the API has been built in a resilient way that we're able to handle any traffic that will hit the API. And can Congress itself benefit from understanding itself better in its own history and its own activities? Because sometimes it looks like, you know, they could use a little continuity knowledge up there. Absolutely. And sharing data across the hill is something that's been happening for a long time. And there are entities amongst the legislative branch agencies that do pull directly from Congress.gov via the API. And I imagine federal agencies wanting to know, say, the legal situation under which they're writing a rule, what's the history here, what might have been some legislative changes they overlooked possibly. That does happen from time to time. Or preparing a legal situation. I imagine there's lots of application that agencies themselves could make of this. Well, that's right, Tom. And there are agencies that have been scraping this data in the past, and they're now able to directly get to the data via the API. All right. I presume there's no charge for the APIs. What do people do that want to get started? You can go to api.congress.gov, click register, and you can register. You submit your email address and you'll get an API key. Um, and then you can start going from there. It's it's really pretty simple to get that API key. And can people that are, again, trying to make sense of this and build applications, can the API be used for other data sources outside of the Library of Congress or they need somebody else's API to do that. Yeah, I would think that you might be able to see where our API might line up and meet with someone else's API and kind of combine a little bit, but you need some expertise and knowledge on how to do that. We need an API to APIs, I guess, someday. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and well, that could go on forever. And you've got an event and you're going to roll this out and kind of explain it to interested parties. Tell us about that. Yeah, we're very excited. We're going to have our third Congress.gov virtual public forum. It's on September 21st, so Wednesday. It's from 1.30 to 4.30. You can go ahead and register. and You can see the Law Library of Congress's blog, Inca Study Legis, where there's a post or on the homepage of Congress.gov. There's a link to the event. You can register it, and you can also submit feedback. Part of this forum is that it's a time for us to gather feedback from all congress.gov users. But one of the items on the agenda is a panel presentation where we're going to talk about the, the new API. We're also going to talk about some of the recent enhancements to congress.gov over the last year since the last public forum. And so it's a great time to also hear from congress.gov data partners from all across Capitol Hill, the House and the Senate and GPO who work hand in hand with us on congress.gov. And by the way, have any members expressed interest in this and saying, hey, thanks for doing this? We did see uh, a recent tweet by Steny Hoyer, who was very appreciative of the API that just launched. All right. Let's hope uh, some others join the bandwagon here. 
Andrew Weber is product owner, and Jim Karamanis is director of IT design and development, both with the Library of Congress. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to the API itself at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Check out the Federal Drive, subscribe at Podcast One, or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took pre- um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really 
sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, those, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. 
And I re- realized, so, well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? And I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Whether it's Baker's Simple Truth Turkey or Mac and Cheese with Murray's English Cheddar 
or pie made with fresh cosmic crisp apples. There are many dishes we look forward to sharing during the holidays, and Baker's has all the fresh ingredients you need to turn today's holidays into tomorrow's memories. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Get more ways to save at the Buy Five or More Save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone.